Well, good morning, everyone. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the Minor Prophets, and today we find ourselves in the book of Nahum. The prophet Nahum uh, was called by God to prophesy against the mighty Assyrian Empire, which dominated the known world in Nahum's day around the 7th century B.C. Now, the prophet Nahum does not uh, show up in many children's Bibles. Um, I think for probably good reason. Um, It is dark, it is heavy, and it forces us to wrestle with the idea of God's judgment and wrath. But what I hope uh, that we will see this morning as we look at Nahum is the paradoxical freedom that comes from worshiping a God who doesn't just affirm good, but also condemns evil. So with that, we're going to read the first chapter of Nahum together. So you have your Bibles, you can open up. It's also printed in your order of worship. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetrated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Upon, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, until you fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is God's word, and it's given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for gathering us together as your people this morning. Thank you for this little book uh, called Nahum. Father, it is dark, and it is, uh, have some really difficult things to, to process But I do pray, Father, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive the message of Nahum. 
that we will indeed see this judgment as good news and that we will see Jesus as good news for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. A number of years ago, uh, my family and I were out for a nice summer walk, and my son Nathaniel was riding a balance bike about a foot or two in front of us, and we had to cross the street. So as we crossed the street, Nathaniel went to ride up on the other side of the sidewalk. But instead of sailing up on the incline, his bike abruptly stopped, and he was launched over his handlebars, landed face first in wet, freshly poured concrete. Yeah. There was no warning tape to block off the sidewalk. The city workers who were standing off the side talking literally watched us go by and did not say a single word. Now, I can look back on that moment with great clarity and say that I did not handle the situation well. Instantly, I was fuming with anger and began running around determined to find out who was to blame. I wanted justice. And I eventually found myself nose to nose with a huge intimidating foreman. And I was threatening all sorts of things that I had no power to actually carry out. Rational or not, I was determined that whoever had been negligent and allowed this to happen to my little boy would be called to account. Now on a much, much larger scale, this human desire for justice and a reckoning for the guilty is precisely the feeling that ancient Israel and their neighboring nations experienced as they came up against the huge, intimidating, oppressive Assyrian army. The book of Nahum was written to uh, when the southern kingdom of Judah was dominated by Assyria about a hundred years after the book of Jonah. Nahum, in some ways, is a surprising sequel to the story of Jonah. And if you were here at the very beginning of our sermon series, then you'll remember that God called the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, the largest and mightiest city the world had ever known up to this point, to prophesy against them. And this is what he said, Yet forty days Nineveh and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, if there was any place that most people in Nahum's day would have liked God to wipe out, it was most certainly Nineveh. The Syrians were legendary for their brutality and their cruelty. For example, an Assyrian king had these words engraved in stone, boasting about his conquest of his enemies. I built a pillar over against his city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. And some I impaled on stakes on the pillar, and others I fixed to stakes around it, and I cut off the limbs of the high officers. Many captives from among them I burned with fire. From some, from some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and others I cut off their noses and their ears and the eyes of many men I put out. I made one heap of the living and another of the heads. So Jonah, at first, refuses to go to Nineveh. 
Not because he's afraid of what the Ninevites might do to him, but because he hated the thought that this enemy who dispersed and tortured and mocked and killed his people might be forgiven and spared. And when the Ninevites do in fact repent and turn away from their evil, Jonah is completely undone with anger and frustration. And Jonah accuses God saying, this is exactly why I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Because I knew. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And God responds saying, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not, do not know their right hand from their left? The book of Jonah causes us to wrestle with God's extraordinary mercy. We are left to wonder at a God whose love stretches far beyond our human capacity to imagine and who delights in showing mercy, even when we might think it not deserved. But if comprehending God's love and mercy is the challenge of Jonah, then the book of Nahum challenges us to wrestle and reconcile God's mercy with his judgment. A century after the prophet Jonah preached, new kings have ascended to the Assyrian throne. Children and grandchildren have been born to those who had repented. And tragically, the time of sorrow over evil was only a brief brief reprieve in Nineveh's long legacy of oppression and brutality. Once again, their MO is to steal and torture and kill other human beings that God has made in his image for the sake of power. And into this moment... God sends Nahum with a new prophecy concerning Nineveh. But this time, rather than sending a message of warning to Nineveh, as he did in the time of Jonah, God sends Nahum to preach to the Israelites who suffered under the thumb of this wicked empire. And God's message is terrifying in its weight and finality. God says of Nineveh in chapter 2, Behold, I am against you. And again in chapter 3, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Woe to the city built on innocent blood. So when Nahum writes at the end of chapter 1, verse 15, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, He is looking into the not-so-distant future when messengers will run into Jerusalem from the northeast where uh, Nineveh lay and shouts remarkable good news. The mighty city has been defeated and its armies will never prey on the weak or vulnerable again. Nahum's message is meant to give God's people hope for their suffering that their suffering has not gone unseen, that the Lord will take vengeance on their behalf. Now, the remaining two chapters of Nahum are vivid prophecies of the chaos and the horror that Nineveh will experience when God's judgment is carried out. 
Nahum's words are remarkable in their accurate description of the siege and the fall of Nineveh at the height of their strength some decades later. And as Nahum prophesied, a flood broke down the city walls, allowing the Babylonians to enter. And Nineveh was laid waste as ruthlessly and completely as her kings had once ravaged other lands. The city was burned. The population was slaughtered or enslaved. And Assyria, as a world power, was done. They were finished. The brutal nation's brutality is visited on the men and the women and the children as they are wiped off the face of the earth. This is what is celebrated in the book of Nahum. So how do we make sense of the God that we meet in the book of Nahum? I think for many of us, for many of us, a God of judgment seems to be in deep contradiction to the compassionate, loving God that likely drew us to faith in the beginning or is drawing us back to faith. But Nahum seems to be able to hold these two pictures of God together. He declares on one, on the one hand, the Lord is good. He knows those who takes refuge in him. Right on the heels of his declaration that God's wrath is poured out like fire. So how is it that a loving God can also be a God who says to a people that he has created, Behold, I am against you. The Croatian theologian and Yale professor Mirzlav Volf has written about his own struggle to reconcile God's wrath and his love. Wolf writes, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature, and that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. Many villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? He says, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful, wrathful because God is love. In other words, love and judgment are not two moods that God has or two sides of his personalities. God is not the character good cop, bad cop from the Lego movie who switches back and forth between his faces. Instead, we see in Nahum that judgment arises out of God's eternal self-giving love. The proposal of the book of Nahum is this, that God's judgment is good news. 
And it's good news because it means that God loves his creation. And when he sees the suffering of the oppressed and the abused and the vulnerable, he declares it evil. And he brings the terrifying power of his wrath to bear on his commitment to justice on their behalf. We know that mercy triumphs over judgment because God's primary primary attribute is love. But judgment is necessary part of God's character because someone who loves will also protect. In fact, I think the opposite of love is not judgment. Rather, it is apathy or indifference. And I think we know this instinctively. It's why when, for example, we were so outraged when the resource officer during the Parkland school shooting stood out while students were being mowed down. Because love acts. It defends. And for the creator of the universe to look out on his good world and not care how humans treat each other is not loving or a caring God. That God would not be worthy of worship. But our king looks out and he looks upon the image bearers that he loves and he sees that what he sees when he sees his image bearers do to one another, when they harm one another, he declares a judgment. And it is fierce and it is overwhelming. Church, this means that where you have been the victim of abuse... God calls it evil, and he will judge. Where your powerlessness has been taken advantage advantage of for another's gain, God calls it evil, and he will judge. Where individuals or people groups, because of the color of their skin or their economic vulnerability or any other factor, have their humanity and their basic dignity as humans assaulted, God calls it evil. And he will judge. Evil does not win. God wins. And this morning, Nahum is inviting us to humble ourselves before God's justice and trust that in his good time, he will bring down the oppressors of every time and place. Now, we are left with one problem, though. If God's judgment is good news in a fallen world, then here is the bad news. You and I are not the good guys. We are not the good guys. Nahum says in verse 6, who can stand before the heat of God's anger? And the answer to his rhetorical question is, no one can. Not you and certainly not me. Once we accept God's wrath as an appropriate and necessary response to injustice, there is no way to keep it out there, reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. I love what Wolf says. It's God's wrath, not mine. The wrath of the one impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want it to fall on evildoers... I must let it fall on myself when I deserve it. So when do we deserve it? When we see people through the lens of what they can give us 
and what we can take. When we allow our anger to wound those we love. When we speak of others with contempt, whether in real life or on social media. When we don't open our mouths for those who can't speak for themselves. You see, the truth is, the reality is, every one of us are guilty of participating in injustice, whether actively or passively or even unintentionally. Just for example, think for a moment about one aspect of our heritage, that we live in a country founded on the idea that all white men were endowed by God with inalienable rights. But if you were a person of color or a woman, you were not. Very few of us live every moment of our day in such a way that undermines all the implications of that heritage. And you know what's ironic? Is that oftentimes, the more we try to oppose injustice, uh, injustice the more judgmental and hateful we become towards the people that we see not doing their part to bring about justice, the more we dehumanize and demonize those whom we see as our adversaries. Now, if I'm honest, I can point to this in myself. When I saw my son on that summer day, covered in wet, wet concrete, I saw myself as the righteous one and the foreman as Assyria. I wanted God's justice to roll down on this man. And so I pulled Nathaniel out of that wet concrete, quickly passed him off to Rachel and stormed around determined to execute justice on my own terms according to my own standards. And the problem was that I was caught up in finding someone to blame, making someone else pay. But I had forgotten about my son, Nathaniel. Who was wet and scared and humiliated and needed his dad to comfort him. And as I railed for injustice, I failed in love for my son. I also failed in love for those workers who had made an honest mistake and were trying to help Rachel hose off our son who was filled with concrete. Now you see, I perpetra perpetrated injustice even as I sought justice. And this is just a small example of how my heart works on any given day and all the complexities of life. I have this deep desire to be known as good, as a good man. And honestly, I don't think that's entirely bad. Because in the, good, in the beginning, God made us <clears throat> and declared us very good. We were made to do good in the world. But in times like this, I am frightened by the kind of hatred and injustice and failure of love that my redeemed heart is capable of. The truth is, is that I am not good. But Nahum says that God is good. And to admit this, 
is to enter into a whole new way of seeing and being in this world. It is entering into the life of Jesus. When Nahum and the other prophets, they only got the the dimmest glimpse into God's rescue plan for his world. But here is the hope that Nahum offers us this morning. Nahum says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And church, this is a picture of Jesus. The good shepherd who knows his sheep. And the refuge that he offers us is his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We do not have to walk around and live in fear of God's justice because God cloaks us with the goodness and righteousness of Jesus and accepts Jesus' death as the full payment we owe for the times when we are the perpetrators. And that means that unjust though we are, we do not need to fear God's wrath. He looks at us with utter delight as he looks at his own son. And because that is true, church, we are free. We are free. Free to, go in, to grow into people who call evil, evil, especially when we see it in our own hearts. Free to become people who continually and joyfully repent for the ways that we fail to love others as image bearers of God, not out of guilt, not out of self-hatred, but because we are so loved. Free to courageously make other people's problems our problems and work on their behalf to bring righteousness and goodness in the world. Free to be people who refuse to give in to hate and cynicism and contempt and vengeance because we are confident that the God that God is the one who will ultimately deal out judgment with equity. So may we so identify with the power of Jesus' life and death on our behalf that we become a people so humbly, we become a people so humble that we work for justice in all the corners of God's great kingdom that he has entrusted to each of us. Amen and amen. May it be so.